sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist currently employed at Jacksonville University as Executive Director of Institutional Analytics, Effectiveness, and Strategic Planning. And joining me today is Brian Smikowski, a political scientist at the University of Idaho. Welcome back, Brian. Hey, Will. Excited to talk today. I think we have a, a nice, diverse group of topics, which on uh, Saturday's show, it didn't feel that way, as obviously we were still... Uh, talking about Trump, and we get to diversify a little bit here, which I think will be good, although Trump's obviously always going to be in these conversations. And I really want to start, Brian, by talking about Mayor Pete. Um, and that may seem weird to start a show leading off, but I think when we look at Mayor Pete's fundraising uh, from the most recent quarter, I think a lot of people are, are probably a little surprised. Uh, Mayor Pete was obviously a likable guy. He had a pretty quick rise. But to sit and have the fundraising numbers that he did, I think took a lot of people um, – by surprise, shocked some, probably shocked some of his fellow 3,000 competitors as well. Um, so I guess my question to start with is, wh- what do you think makes pa- Mayor Pete so likable? Um, it sounds like such a basic question, but in reality, I mean, he seems like the guy that's the friendly, likable guy. And I think when you look at the debate stage, you got guys like Cory Booker and Joe Biden sitting there saying, like, we were supposed to be the likable ones, and Mayor mm-hmm. Pete's beating us at our own game. I think he taps into uh, this this dimension that's out there of it's almost cool to like him. It's almost cool to support him, right? Because if you think about what he's bringing to the table, you know, we could talk about him being, you know, young. We could talk about his identity. We could talk about his military service. We could talk about uh, being multilingual. We could talk about the charismatic effect. Uh, it almost seems parks and wreckish in a way where it's like the small town mayor, you know, instead of like, you know, crashing the economy with an ice rink or whatever it was, is having this meteoric, you know, rise. Um, I still see it as, I see it as like a hot flash because he's done a lot of uh, fundraising that's had an immediate impact and has garnered a lot of attention. And let's face it, attention follows money because right now we're talking about this because here's a guy who's mayor of a town with, what, 102,000 people or something like that. And Touchdown Jesus. Yeah, exactly, right? And so so the question is why? You know, what's the special sauce here? Well, I, I think part of it is it's kind of cool to say, you know, I want to get behind the person who – represents all these things. I want to get behind the person who's, you know, bringing identity to the forefront. So when we look at, you know, the celebrities that are backing him from, you know, Mandy Moore to Michael J. Fox um, to George Takai and to Barbara Streisand and Jennifer Aniston, you know, here's here's a person who is, you know, tapping into a segment of uh, the celebrity world that makes people like stop and pause and say why and we can see the reason why and we're like oh this is the cool hip person who we should be getting behind right we haven't had a candidate like this we should get behind him i i still think that it's going to be uh, a pretty limited flash it's a very hot flash but it's going to be limited and when you look at the the fundraising time period he did bring in a lot of money in a relatively short period of time and some will say look at how he's raised more money than trump um than uh, Biden, but the reality is, you know, Biden during the last quarter started raising money later than uh, Mayor Pete did, and actually on a daily basis. If you break it down day by day, he, act, you know, his his funding is significant. 
but it's also not as um, astonishing when you look at it in comparison to what other people like Joe Biden have been able to bring in on pretty short notice. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. Um, and I think we can also make the case, obviously, that everything that Mayor Pete's sort of making here is building from zero versus somebody like Biden who has a war chest, war whether chest, it's in yeah. place or not, um, or has the ability to make a few phone calls and, and trump these numbers without a whole lot of effort on his end. Um, but I do agree. I mean, I think it's the the interest level. And I mean, Mayor Pete and what he does on Twitter and uh, his husband, um, I think, plays a role here as well. I mean, and again, I mean, not saying there that Mayor Pete being gay is part of the story. That's part of the story in and of itself. But his husband's a likable kind of aloof guy that that's fun to watch and interesting to observe. And it's fun to see their dynamic and the discussions and the debates and you know, the, the bigger debates and the smaller little inner fights they let play publicly out. Um, I think there's a lot there. When I look at Mayor Pete, though, the thing that concerns me for him and concerns me, in all honesty, for Democrats is from what I can see in the polls I've looked at, black people don't like Mayor Pete, um, at least not as their <laughs> yeah. first choice. It's not that they don't like him, but he is not, you know, doing a great job with that group, which is going to be, and again, not just saying African-Americans, but any minority group is going to play a crucial role here in terms of turning out the vote, getting support, and getting things done. Um, And I'm not sure Mayor Pete's figured out how to crack that yet. Um, And obviously everything that happened with, um, you know, everything in South Bend, the very contentious town hall meeting, again, I'd say beyond contentious, I think that was Mayor Pete getting, um, not embarrassed, but that, that was not a good evening for Mayor Pete. Um, in any way, shape, or form. It was on a very local issue, a very hot-button issue. Um, but I'm not sure how he turns that corner because being a candidate who does really well with 20% of the voters is not going to work for the Democrats. Today. It'll get you through a primary pretty far. I mean, my God, you divide the number of Democrats in the country by 4,800, and we have you know what you need to win a primary. Um, but what's he need to do to, to relate and, and show better with other groups? Does he need to, I guess? Maybe that's the more proper first question. Well, I think you uh, brought up this issue about, you know, how do, how do you crack that nut? Um, and I, I don't think he's going to get that far. I don't think he's going to get that chance to do it. I think that, um, you know, there, there was a time before the president administration where we would be saying things like, it, it's a long way from being a mayor to being president, right? You know, we used to talk about the stair steps of political experience that you need to accomplish in order to ascend in rank to uh, be the leader of the free world. Well, obviously, you know, Trump has blown a curve on that. And so here's somebody who's young and he's charismatic, and he has brought some things to the forefront in a, in a non-threatening, charismatic way that resonates with a very – um a uh, generous aspect of the liberal side of the continuum. How that's going to reach and how that's going to play with the the mainstream voters, you know, I, um, I I don't think there's as much there because again, if we were to go out there and say to people, you know, what's the one thing when you think about Mayor Pete? What's his signature political accomplishment? What does he bring to the table as a candidate for president that would say, among those twenty Democrats? He's the one who I want to take on uh, Donald Trump in the general election. You know, what's that defining thing? I mean, there's a lot of things that are involved with his um, his presence, right, on a discursive terrain and in the media. But in terms of substantive policy, what's there? And I think also another thing that's relevant when we look at the finances is also looking at some of the candidates that seem to be stalling a little bit. Like right now, the way that we're talking about Mayor P is the way that we were talking about 
Beto O'Rourke, right? That a year ago, he was the rising star who looked like he had limitless potential. But there seems to be a little bit of a stall in terms of his fundraising in the second quarter. If you look at Gillibrand and if you look at Booker and Globachar, there, there are candidates who are, they're not, they're not waning necessarily, but they're not bringing in in a second quarter, uh, the funding that can really offset what, uh, the other candidates the bring to the gap. table. The giant gap. And I think, you know, when we start thinking about things that's going to ultimately be separating out the Democratic candidates in the coming um, days, weeks and months, you know, money, money goes far. You know, it's money is it consequential. And I think that when we think about the. Let me ask you this, Brian, because this keeps coming up in, in the politics guys Facebook page. Do you think it's realistic or even necessary to strip money completely out of politics? Realistic? No. Oh, no. We all know um, it's not realistic. I yeah. mean, this is Don Quixotean in terms of chasing windmills to think money's leaving. Right. But do you think it should be? Do you think there's benefits? Do you think there's costs? What? You know, I, I think that in an ideal world, we would say, you know, this this is the illusion of uh, rational choice theory, Right. That uh, people would look and they would deploy their mathematical calculus and they would look and say, you know, what's the proximity between, you know, these anonymous candidates and I on these issues and then dispassionately I choose this person and it's all about what uh, prevails in a marketplace of ideas. That's not how um, you vote? That's not no, yeah, that's not how I vote. <laughs> you know, we also know that it's you know it comes down to all these other uh, intangibles, and I think that you know money because there's other ways to look at it too. That um, it you know from a, from a really particular um, hard liberal angle, we could say that money corrupts. You know, nearly absolutely, it's it's almost like power in a way. Uh, on the other hand, how are you going to? Especially given, let, let's look at what the media is, what the media are right now. How are you going to get your authentic message through when so much of what people perceive to be news is really infotainment, right? You got to buy that share. You got you got to buy that market share. Unless and until we were to smooth a curve and say the only purpose of the news is to broadcast factual information on a twenty-four hour basis. You know, that that's not the news that we could use or the news that voters choose. So you've got to be able to invest into the process in order to establish your market share. We have the AP, though. They kind of do that. But again, kind of? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not as much now as they used to. Yeah, um, and I think there is that. But but let's look also. Where, where does the average voter go to get his or her uh, information pertinent to their voting behavior? Great question. I mean, you know, we, we know this, right? We know that there's a selection bias. Oh, yeah. Um, they go to their friends. They go to like-minded people. They go to like-minded sites. I don't want to read the opposition unless I want to get a laugh or strengthen yeah. my own argument. You stay you stay within your, your little bubble and, you know, and this, this is part of the, you know, the conversations that we've had about the, the Trump juggernaut, which is don't even pay attention to the news. Just listen to me. I am the news, right? I'll push it out there. I'll broadcast it. And does, is it right? No. Is it factual? No. Is it crazy? Yeah. Um, does the average voter care? No. Why? Because they're hearing what they want to hear from the person who they trust and who they want to hear it from. Yeah. And I think and they're going to you know, take them is, to where they want to go. Yeah. And and I'm I'm not going to I don't want to come across as, you know, holy crap. I, I remember, you know, Brian was the democratic socialist that we all knew and didn't love. Um, and now he sounds like this this hardcore capitalist. But the reality is polarization. If you were to if you were to say, let's just not allow 
money to be in politics. How do you do that given the media, the media's presence and voting behavior and where we choose to select our news, right? It, yeah. it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to fit the model. Um, and to be honest, I mean, for me, the folks that seem to be the most unhappy about money in politics are a lot of people who like candidates that even with the money, I'm not sure would be able to get the attention they want them to have. Um, well, and again, yeah, if I think about it, I mean, Bernie Sanders didn't lose to Hillary because he didn't have money. Yeah. And, and there's as a much bit of irony also that when, you know, when you're Bernie Sanders, and again, I, I'm not being critical of the candidates when I say this, but when you think about the amount of wealth associated with the war chest of the, of a person who is the quote unquote outsider of the person who is not the capitalist of the bunch, but yet his war chest and his, his bankroll is substantial. I think that says a lot about the political system, right? That even if you reject the economic system, you still got to pay to get in in order to win, in order to dismantle the thing. Yeah, that is kind of, is kind of ironic. Let's think about the Democrats. I mean, we obviously have the next Democratic debate coming up. Um, again, my favorite punching bag has apparently now qualified somehow. Um, Tim Ryan found out this week that he'll be there. Um, it, it, I'll be honest, the fact that the Tim Ryans and the others that are, are like Ryan equally, not unlikely, but not going to be the nominee, keep getting invited. I, it makes me immediately say, what value is this debate going to have again? And as a Democrat, I'd ask you this almost, are you actually going to get value from this? I mean, is this going to be a debate where we start to see separation, where we have an opportunity to see who out of that middle pack that has some name recognition and has some actual money can figure out who has a chance to jump up versus fall down or how the top's doing? Or is this something that, you know, we we made sure that we had all of these people because we just ultimately needed to have a, a live draft where we pick where they're going to to stand on stage because all of the analysis I've seen in the last few weeks, and there was a really good article about it this week, was there may be 24 Democrats running for president, but at the end of the day, Biden, Mayor Pete, Senator Harris, Senator Sanders, and Senator Warren are the only ones that voters and donors seem to even care about. Um, well, you just took away everything that I was going to say. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is when you said, you know, what, you know, what does it matter? Um, are we going to get anything out of this? And have we got anything out of this? I, I think if you look at the individual level and say, Harris sure did, right? Because, you know, when, when you have somebody squaring off, for example, against Biden, and suddenly, you know, remember the, the the bump that she got, right? You get you get money coming in. So you look at some of the investment that goes into our campaign. You make you you have your moment where you go toe to toe with the um, with the old guard of the Democratic Party, and you hold your own, and you come out looking pretty darn good. For Harris, that that strategy worked really well, right? So she's in a pretty good position as a result of the the debates. The reality is, and to me the most interesting question is, which candidates get to debate on what night, right? Because it's it's not so much that it's like open up the floodgate and let everybody in. And I was reading, um, you know, the the methodology that's used to um, help determine 
the the positioning of the candidates. And you know, you think about these these tiers, right? You got the top tier, the middle tier, and a bottom tier. And a bottom tier, you know, are where we find Bennett and Bullock and Ryan, you know, your favorite person, and Inslee and Hickenlooper and, and people like this. In the middle tier, you've got Mayor Pete and you got Booker and you've got O'Rourke and and Castro, for example. But the top tier is Biden, Harris, Warren, and Sanders, right? And I don't think anybody's going to be surprised that the um, the debate is really going to focus around which one of these four, and I'll give it a plus two here, right? Biden, Harris, Sanders, Warren, Booker, um, and, and potentially Mayor Pete are going to rise to the surface as a result of this. Because, you know, as we talked about a minute ago, you know, Booker's campaign uh, contributions have stalled a little bit. O'Rourke's campaign contributions have stalled a little bit. Well, after that um, last debate, I'm surprised Beto has anybody still sending money. I, yeah, I, I agree. He's got, a, he's got a strong base of support. I mean, for the people who like him, they love him, right? It's Cause he made that connection a while ago before we started heating up and even talking about the campaign season. And so he does have that particular base. Now the question is what candidate's going to pull that in? Cause let's, let's push O'Rourke out, right? You know, for the sake of argument and also for the sake of reality. I don't think he's going to go very much farther. Who's going to pick up those pieces? Because really what, what we have to find in Warren Sanders, Harris, Biden, or Mayor Pete, for example, is which one of these candidates is going to help represent a platform for the party that goes against Trump's portrayal of the party as one being in disarray. And if people say, oh, no, look, they're organizing. They're not in disarray anymore. They'll be like, oh, don't forget, they're crazy, right? Yeah, they're all nuts. Yeah, if he looks at the squad. So all that conversation that we've had about the tweets that came out being, in in my opinion, very strategic and very calculated was a way to be able to portray the party as the fringe, to portray the party as the squad. And for the candidates who want to run, they're going to have to deal with the identity crisis that they have that's being, you know, fabricated by the right as well. So I, I think I think it's going to be interesting to see what lessons Biden learned from uh, the last time around. I'm hoping that there's going to be something that's going to be um, a mark of distinction. And, you know, I'm hoping, you know, I'm curious about the top tier candidates. If it's going to be, you know, quote unquote, boy, girl, boy, girl, you know, uh, squaring off when we have Biden, Harris, Sanders and Warren, you know, really as the top four. What's it going to be like when we when we see them coming at the divisive issues that define the current landscape. And Warren and Sanders have the strong economic message. It's a different economic message, but they're focused on economic justice. And, you know, and, and Warren's tough. She's smart. She's got a sound policy. Super does smart. It, does it resonate with the voters? No. It's going to be the issue, right? Especially well, I'll with, put it this way. It sure doesn't resonate with anybody sitting moderate right. Exactly. If you're looking about the meaty middle, right, and if you want to sway people over to the other side, um, if their perception is that the economy is doing all right, the argument that the argument for economic justice is not going to fly. So the question is, then is, you know, Biden and let's think also about the population of voters that's ascending and is so critical here, which is the the non-white, uh, non, non-Republican, non-white vote. Who's going to be able to court that? 
who's going to be able to bring in the historically marginalized groups uh, and mobilize a base of support that is democratic identifying or democratic leaning in the election. And here, you know, we've talked previously about this, that Joe Biden has a particular advantage. Um, so does Harris. Um, they probably, if they were to see Elizabeth Warren's economic um, argument, be very swayed by it. But it requires a high degree of voter sophistication to, and I'm not going to say that Warren is aloof or inaccessible, but it's a very intellectually, almost academically built um, proposal, right? And it's hard to make that relatable to, for example, the economic underclass when it seems like it should be obvious. Absolutely, I think that's I think that's fair, um, and I do think it's interesting, obviously, with the way that they chose to to split and how they chose their metrics and i just it's you made the point that harris saw such a positive jump going toe-to-toe with biden it it just makes me wonder do we need more moments like that but to get to that we need the right people on stage um and I, i just i'm not convinced that this approach of allowing everybody and having the views heard and the voices heard is is what we need uh, but again, I'm sitting on the right. Uh, we've been through this. Democrats yeah. openly mocked us for the number of debates and the number of candidates. Uh, and instead of doing anything to change that, you you seem to be following our blueprint. Now, again, our blueprint worked for us. So, hell, maybe it will for you guys, too. Um, well, but it's, I just, it's really just, you know, and it's a point that I made previously. It's it's too many cooks in the kitchen and everybody's saying that they've got the secret sauce, but nobody nobody really is like – Bringing it out there to where all the judges could be like, like if it was a barbecue cook-off, we'd be like, that's the best, that's the best damn barbecue sauce I've ever had, right? That's not emerging yet. There, there's nothing that's really, there's not been that galvanizing soundbite, right? Those are the kinds of things that you kind of want at the stage yep. is who says what that's going to make people start repeating it over and over and over again. Because, you know, love or hate Trump, and we know where you and I and, well, Everybody in the country stands on on that side or the other. Um, there, there is a message that's out there, right? On a daily basis, there's something out there that people will repeat and chant, and we don't really have the repeating and the chanting, uh, at least in the numbers that could give you the numbers sufficient to carry the election with the Electoral College, right? Get in, yep. get in a popular vote again. Get in a popular matter. vote might not be the important thing, but our system is built upon you know, the popular vote matters, but the Electoral College vote is what seats the president. Yep. And again, I mean, I would disagree. I think Marianne Williamson has done a great job of having easily repeatable lines and can't wait to hear a couple of more from her on the uh, the 30th and 31st. Well, yeah. Probably not once right. Democrats want repeated, but uh, yeah, talk exactly. about meme material right there. Exactly. And, and that's the thing, right, that um, if you looked at it from a consulting standpoint, you would you'd be you know, like, where, where is our keep hope alive, right? Where 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 is that galvanizing? Is the economy stupid? You know, whatever it is, where is that? And we, maybe because this is early, we haven't gotten there yet, but we don't have that critical distinction. We have distinction by identity. We can look and see a difference between the candidates. We could hear a difference between the candidates. We could see a difference in terms of the political careers and, uh, and, and political acumen, but we don't yet have that distinction that's allowing people to see kind of like a magnet what's what's pulling the voters towards them. That's not really emerging yet. Yeah, at least not clearly. Well, it would be fun gear. if it happened next week. Could. Who yep. knows? 
Um, or we, we should just have another, another fun <laughs> mess. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, interesting story that kept, kept coming up over the last week um, on a lot of different sites with a lot of, a lot of different analyses was the trip Abigail Disney took to Disneyland. Um, Disney World is a very favorite place of mine, as you know. I mean, I'm getting married there in December. I love going. We've been annual pass holders since we got to Florida. Um, but when I look at this story... And the outcry from this Disney heiress about what Bob Iger is making at roughly $66 million a year versus what the average worker is making and how they're telling her that there's no way that they can keep living and they're living paycheck to paycheck. And it's hard to be in the Disney spirit and bringing joy and being warm while thinking about the fact that they're going to, and I believe the quote was, go home and forage for food in other people's garbage. It definitely raises the question, the broader question about capitalism in the United States and the wage gap that you've mentioned previously on the show, Brian. Um, you know, you and I were joking about this story and how we were going to approach it before we started recording. And, and you made up the point of, you know, Bob Iger sitting in an air-conditioned office is obviously in a different place than some minimum wage earning 18-year-old wearing a Winnie the Pooh costume. But there's a whole lot of truth to that. Um what do you think about this whole story, the concept of Bob Iger makes $66 million and that kid makes whatever minimum wage is in California today, um, but still has the living expenses of being in California today? Is this a problem or is just this the nature of what happens in a truly capitalistic society that's looking to allow individuals to control their destiny? Uh, I, I think it is – this, in some ways, is for many the the example of democracy at it, uh, not democracy, capitalism at its at its finest. Uh, for others, of that would us, be me. This is, yeah, this would be. Hey, man, there's something really wrong with the way the system is. Now, I'll tell you. You know, I <laughs> the first story that I clicked on, I cracked up when I when I saw. I was so livid, says Disney heiress, right? And the whole idea of heiress, when you, yeah, when you have the word heiress, that's part of your title. Um, it's it's very bourgeois. It's very much like you know I I don't really relate with this population that I'm talking about, but I want the world to. And she's you know she's presented this really pure notion about like you know when my grandfather and his brother started um, Disney Corporation and Disney World and everything else. You know they they wanted people who were going to come there and work there for life. And there was like two hundred thousand employees scattered all over the place. And you know again you know how how many people are going to like work for life as what do I do? I'm Winnie the Pooh. You know, and when I was 18 years old, I got a job at the theme park and I was Winnie the Pooh. And now I'm benefits eligible for retirement and I'm Winnie the Pooh. I'm retiring my costume. Um, it, it really doesn't work like that. Now, I do believe that there is something to be said for the colossal wage gap. Is there something really wrong with our sense of economic entitlement to say that the guy who runs the quote-unquote happiest place on earth – should make $65 million a year. That's incomprehensible. That's like monopoly money, right? I can't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I bet I could figure uh, out how to spend that somehow. I Yeah, I, I could blow it in a heartbeat, I'm sure. Property taxes a second year would kill me. Yeah, there would be that. But, you know, but if you look at the other end also, the reality is many of us don't 
identify with the economic underclass that is, you know, literally, you know, when she said Bob needs to understand that he's an employee just the same as the people scrubbing gum off the sidewalks are employees. And when she makes a comment about, you know, the the, the, the people who work there and, you know, Anaheim is, um, you know, close to a pretty nice part of, you know, Southern California. And the cost of living is obviously going to be high. And when people are li- literally living paycheck to paycheck, even if they're not literally foraging for food in other people's garbage cans, they're making an extremely meager wage, to say the least, in a place that's notorious for a high cost of living. So what's the offset here? And, and I think it this- keeps charging consumers, let's be honest. Disney's making money still. Yeah. yeah, it's it's expensive. So the, the question is, and I think this is one of the debates that we hear you know, in, in capitalism, even if this wasn't Disney, the question would be, what do we make of and what do we do about the gap between the richest and the poorest, right? And the argument is how much do we – how much political inertia is there to change that when so many people have as their dream? What do you want to be when you get older? And I ask students this all the time. Like, you know, well, how do you see yourself in 10 years? What do you want to be? And a lot of students will just say rich and they're only half tongue-in-cheek when they say that, right? And so what we have is a system that could really – legitimize this level of obscene wealth that's for a very privileged few. But the reality for many people and part of the illusion of economic performance, Will, is that we have more people who might be employed, but they're also representative of a larger and growing economic underclass, where the level of economic compensation is at or below the poverty line. So what do we do about this when we have, for example, members of Congress who make $30 million a year when his salary is, you know, not that high, you know, $175,000 or something, right? Um, that's high compared to a lot of people, but it doesn't offset the $30 million that they have. So what we have is a real gap and, and how, do, how much political inertia is there to do something in a capitalist society to smooth that curve? We've had the conversations about the flat taxes. We've had conversations about trickle-down economics. We've had conversations about fundamentally altering um, the, the type of political economy that we have to Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a wealth tax. And I don't see right now a lot of a lot of traction moving in a direction to say, let's just change our economic system. Yeah, it's, not guess, just, it's not about changing Disney. It's about our economic system. Disney you better here, not change Disney. Well, <laughs> but Disney, you know, this like right now in a moment, the heiress goes there and is like, this is not the Disney of my youth. My family would be rolling over in their graves if they saw this. And she's probably right. They probably yeah. would be. James Madison would be rolling over too. He'd want to know what a cell phone is. (laughs) And so the question is, is this really about Disney or is it really about the economy? It's really about the economy. And and more fundamentally, it's really about the economic system. Um, And it's not really about Disney. Can Disney do something to offset that? Absolutely they could. But how much of an incentive does the Walt Disney Corporation have to take Bob Iger down from almost $66 million a year in order to fill that huge gap between his earnings and the cumulative earnings of all other Disney workers. Yeah, and what does that cause in leadership? It raises so many questions, and I think that's what's hard. To some degree, 
we're at the point where we're in the middle of a game that it doesn't seem possible to change the rules at that fundamental level today without causing outright chaos. Um, And again, I will openly admit here on this show that, you know, being on the right side of this equation makes me even less willing to think about doing that. Um, But the ideological right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Dear Lord. Yes. Um, Not on the Bob Iger side. Um, But it's, it's, that's what it's going to take. I mean, we can't expect, you know, what happens if Walt Disney decides, okay, so we're going to cut our CEO or Bob Iger says, I'm just going to take a $1 salary. Do people think that all of a sudden Disney World and Disneyland are going to be free? Um, that's just not how this profiteering is going to work in society today. And it's definitely something to be considerate of. But to your point, I'm not sure that the way that she went public with this story necessarily helped prove it. I mean, the idea that they're getting full pay minimum wage, there are people who would die to have a job at Disneyland who can't get one um, because they need the money. So it's it's just a it's just a very interesting conversation that I've seen. And again, it's raised a lot of interesting points and I think got people talking about it in a way that I haven't seen recently, um, at least not as poignantly or focused on one case, which does at least add some color to it compared to just the general everybody needs to get paid more arguments I hear that are as, as frequent as you know people telling higher ed that the first two years of higher ed should be free no matter what without recognizing that, sure, while Tennessee did a great job with that and Governor Haslam deserves all the praise in the world, they had the infrastructure in place to help that happen and they also had the lack of private schools to really push back on it versus walking into any school and saying that or any state and saying that without thinking about the actual repercussions. Or, it's pretty difficult. Yeah, and I think when when you made the comment about like what's what's Disney really going to do is is Bob going to say I'll take a dollar salary next year? That's the kind of movie that would star Adam Sandler, right? Where you've got the the the, the evil maniacal person who's you know, somebody portrayed that way who's making all this money, and then they they see what life is like among other people, or it's like this was kind of like undercover boss except it was undercover heiress, right? And you go and see this, and you're like, what are we going to do about this? And you find one or two people, and it's like we're going to give your family a vacation, and we're going to give you a new house, and we're going to help you get a better job, and we're going to let you complete that education. And you can have those high-profile cases for a small number of people. You can create, you know, some programs that could really benefit um, select people. But the reality is, it's really only in Hollywood where somebody has that crisis of consciousness and says, "There's something very wrong. I should not be making this much money. Take my wealth, right? You know, and, and give it to Tiny Tim. Give it to all the people who are really truly deserving out there." Um, that happens in the movies. It doesn't happen in a corporate capitalist system. Now, I again, coming at it from the left, I don't really like corporate capitalism. I see it as fundamentally unfair, and I see the, the cost of capitalism being paid um, at the expense of genuine democracy. But how do you change and dismantle the economic system to be able to get to the root cause that's allowing Bob Iger to make $66 million and to make the Winnie the Pooh costume-wearing person? Um, I don't know what the salary is. I, I can't even estimate it, but I would bet that it's not $64 It's not $66 million. Million. Yeah, it's not $64 million, but it's still probably equal to or more than the person working at a fast food restaurant. And I would argue that it's more than what a bunch of potentially unemployed people would be willing to pay or take to take similar work. Um, And that's where I think that bottom half of the equation gets always brought up. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener supports what keeps the show going. We truly appreciate it. 
When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but you also get the supporters' exclusive bonus episode each week that we put up right after the Saturday show. And supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear, I've seen mugs, I've seen tote bags, and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com forward slash support. Subscribing to the show also helps us out as to sharing episodes. We always rely on word of mouth. That's our best advertising. So we appreciate that, along with your reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you're using to get to us. If you have questions, comments, corrections, concerns, or just generally want to vent to us, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com or at our Facebook page where you can message us and share throughout the week. It's facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andre Masker, and Benji Fishman. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new episode on uh, Saturday, and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks.